I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today we have a special live edition from the 2023 Berkeley Fall Forum on Corporate Governance with Chum Fee, the general counsel at Databricks, software company here in San Francisco. We're going to talk about three issues this afternoon. First, the mosaic acquisition that Databricks did earlier this year. Secondly, the uncertain legal environment that AI faces. And then finally, the challenges of running the legal department at a late stage private company. So first, Chum, could you orient us by telling us a little bit about Databricks? Sure. So we are a data and AI company. We've pioneered the concept of a data lake house, which really combines the best of the features of a data warehouse and a data lake. And just to put that in lay speak, that means that we help companies gather all of their structured and unstructured data in one place, and they can really harness the value of that data so that they can understand, for instance, what's happened historically. They can make predictions about what's going to happen, and they can make really informed decisions based on that information. And so, for instance, some of our customers leverage our platform to accelerate cancer research or to have allowed for earlier diagnosis of autism and a whole host of other really interesting use cases. Where was Databricks as a business when the talks with Mosaic started? So, as I mentioned, we're a data and AI company. We've always been focused on how can we democratize AI so that all companies can benefit from it. We were really seeing in kind of the frenzy on AI and in particular generative AI and large language models, we were seeing a couple of trends emerge. And the first one was around that this new technology was really expensive. And so we thought that this was going to end up being a situation where really well-resourced companies were going to be able to leverage it and not a lot of other companies. And then the other trend that we were seeing was that, you know, companies were really going to have to hand over their proprietary, their confidential information to third parties in order to use this technology. And so what we decided to do was in March of this year, we released what we called Dolly. And then very quickly afterwards, we released Dolly 2.0 and we completely open sourced it. So both the model as well as the data set. And it was really released as a proof of concept to let everyone understand that you really leverage this technology in an inexpensive way and with not a lot of resources. And you can do that without handing over your information to a third party. And so that was the state of play when we started to have the discussions with the Mosaic folks. What was the attraction of Mosaic for Databricks? We really thought that just from a personality perspective, there was a complete mesh with their leadership team and our leadership team. And, you know, they were founded by a number of academics. We were founded by seven academics, seven PhDs coming out of Berkeley. And so there was really a great affinity there. But really from a business perspective, we are also aligned with them. They also were focused on democratizing AI. And so we thought that that was a perfect mix. If we were able to kind of get to valuation, that that was going to be a really great deal to put together. 
Could you talk a little bit about the legal issues that were particularly challenging to think through in the acquisition? So I don't think that there were a lot of really interesting legal issues necessarily. What was harder there was just the speed with which it happened. In the beginning of the discussions, Mosaic, they were just doing so well as a business. With all the buzz around generative AI, it was certainly having a very significant positive impact on their business. And so when discussions that started, I thought there was a good chance we really weren't going to be able to come together on valuation. And so that happened over the course of about a month or so. And then really over Memorial Day weekend, on a Saturday, the head of Corp Dev reached out to me and said, it looks as though we're going to get pretty close to an agreement and principle on valuation. You know, do you think we can pull together an LOI over the weekend? And so I did what I usually do in situations where it's a complicated situation and I have to move really quickly. And that is, you know, my first call was to my most trusted outside legal advisor, who is David Bell from Fenwick and West. And at the time, Memorial Day weekend, I was on vacation in Tahoe. He was on vacation in Yellowstone. And by the end of that weekend, we had a signed LOI. I mean, David pulled together some folks from his team. We scrambled all weekend, got in place a signed LOI, and then we were off to the races. One issue we talked about a little on the prep call was antitrust, which seems absolutely pervasive in M&A at this point. Talk about decision you made with regard to HSR filing and the logic behind that decision. So we did something in this deal with Mosaic that I've never done before in a prior acquisition, and that is we filed HSR based on the LOI. And we did that for a few reasons. One, generally, we would not do this because I'd want to have greater certainty that we're actually going to have a signed deal before we make a filing. You know, there's time and there's costs associated with it. And I don't want to do that unless there's certainty. And that certainty comes with a signed definitive agreement. But in this instance, time was really important to the business. And we had gotten far enough in diligence and we felt confident enough that we're going to get to a definitive. And in addition to that, we weren't concerned from a competition law perspective. And we thought that since early termination wasn't going to be a factor here, that even if we didn't reach agreement and sign a definitive, that the filing would still remain confidential. And so for all of those reasons, we thought it was going to be a useful thing to file HSR based on the LOI and to get the 30-day HSR period started so that after the expiration of the waiting period, we were able to close very shortly after that. The business was thrilled by that result. It really took from the time that we had assigned LOI to the time that we closed, it was about 45 days. And so it's really completely unheard of. And so finally, with regard to the acquisition, talk a little bit about how the acquisition has gone post-closing. We only closed in mid-July, but so far it has been exactly what we expected it to be, where it was really a great process where they had fantastic technology. We were able to leverage in a way that was fairly seamless in our business. And I was really glad that on a business initiative that was so important to the company, that my legal team, working with David and the Fenwick team, were able to kind of come together and really support it happening in such a fast manner. 
Let's switch to the legal issues you're managing, starting with the potential copyright issues raised by AI and where those stand. I think that that's probably a session all its own, right? I mean, there are really interesting novel copyright issues that are being litigated right now. There's the co-pilot litigation. There's a lot of litigation from various artists, famous and otherwise, about the use of their copyrighted material to train models. We're tracking it very closely. And I expect that in the coming years that there's going to be a lot of interesting developments on the copyright side. Let's move to regulatory issues, both in the U.S. and the EU. What are you seeing on that front or fronts? Well, in the EU, we're definitely seeing a lot more activity that's more concrete, that's you know heading towards legislation. And we expect that that's going to happen a lot earlier than it'll happen in the States. And in particular, the EU AI Act is very likely going to be passed early next year. And we expect that similar to GDPR, that there'll be some period of time, a year or two years before that act actually goes into effect. But we expect that that's going to happen fairly shortly. We're also tracking a number of things in the EU that are related to the AI Act, like the AI Liability Act is a data act. So there's a lot of activity that's happening in the EU. In the States, there's a lot of discussions right now. And so, for instance, on the federal side, You'll hear a lot from senators, for instance, or the White House asking private sector companies to agree to voluntary commitments at state level. With a lot of states, they're actually trying to see whether they can leverage existing privacy legislation, right, and have that apply to AI. And they're also focused on bias in the decision-making process and making sure that AI technologies, as they're being leveraged by companies, that they're not being used in ways that are going to have a negative impact as the technology is being used for automated decision-making. How, assuming you get laws passed on AI in the EU, how much will those affect product design and users in the U.S., given that I would assume many AI companies want to be in both the EU and the U.S. markets? Right now, and again, I mean, the UAI Act is still being discussed, so we're not exactly sure where it's going to land. But there is a difference between developers right now versus those who are going to deploy the technology. And so we think that there's going to be a different set of regulations there. I mean, right now, they're thinking about a risk-based approach where there's going to be some AI use that isn't going to be regulated at all, all the way up to high-risk use cases and where there will be a lot of regulation and there are going to be a category of use cases that are completely banned. And so that's what we're seeing there. I do think that it's going to depend on what category you fall into. There'll be a lot of time for companies to understand what their compliance obligations are and to get into compliance, very similar to what happened with GDPR. And how does the uncertainty around both copyright and regulation affect how you run the business? So we definitely are tracking what's going on on the regulatory front, on the litigation front, and keeping very close to developments there. But in addition to that, we have very closely aligned with a lot of functions internally, in particular the product development folks. And 
having a very kind of solid understanding that this is an area that is in flux. It's changing very rapidly. And we're going to agree to guardrails as we're developing new technologies, as well as, I mean, we're also using new technologies, right? And just making sure that everyone understands what the guardrails are and understand that the guardrails are going to be interim for now. This isn't going to be a situation where you're going to agree to a framework and just put on the shelf and that's just going to be in place for a very long time. Things are moving too quickly for that. And we want to make sure that we're remaining agile, but that means that we're going to agree to kind of short-term guardrails and stay close with the business and have a continuing dialogue. We're going to switch topics to running a legal department. I guess as background for that conversation, could you just give us a little sense of your career arc as an in-house lawyer and as a general counsel? Yes. So this is the fifth company where I've been general counsel. And my prior four companies were public companies. Two of them were startups when I joined, went through the IPO process with them. They've all been companies that have been in hyper growth at various stages, right? So I've joined companies where they were at 100 or 200 million in annual revenue, you know, still at hyper growth, right? Growing at 50% plus. But being at a company like Databricks, which is over a billion in annual revenues and still growing at that same pace, that definitely is a completely different ballgame to be in. So talk about the challenges of hyper growth for a GC and how those challenges are different for you at Databricks than they would have been a much smaller company that was in that kind of growth mode. So I do think that, you know, Whenever you're in hypergrowth, I mean, there's specific challenges that you're going to have to address. I think that what's unique to being at scale in hypergrowth is that process and systems and people, all of those matter so much more because if you don't get those things right, you are not going to be able to keep up with the pace of change. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and helping not just the legal team, but the business think about you know, how can we streamline processes? How can we improve processes? What do we do as we think about the digital transformation process? And another focus of mine is it's absolutely key to have a fantastic legal ops team. Because I want to make sure that we are making data-driven decisions. I want to make sure that I'm seeing the metrics. And that's partly how we're going to be able to make really smart decisions. And we're going to be able to keep up with the pace of growth. What unique challenges do late stage private companies pose for a GC, maybe as to a, as compared to an earlier stage private company or a company that, that's gone public? You mentioned that two of your, the companies where you'd been GC had gone public in your tenure. So I think a big component of it really is that once you're a late stage startup, you're no longer below the radar, right? And so you really do need to make sure that you are putting in And you have a solid foundation, not just on the business side, but also on the compliance side, right? But you're not a public company yet. And so being judicious about what you're rolling out and what the timing of that is so that you aren't putting in place an infrastructure that is too big for where you're currently at. And that's going to inhibit your ability to really remain agile. I'll give you an example where on the privacy side, for instance, Privacy is important to a lot of customers. They're certainly important to our customers. And so having a privacy framework and program that is much more mature and developed, we really need to make sure that we have that in place because that's going to meet customer expectations. 
compare that to our trade controls program, where that's something where you can think about putting in place that program in a phased approach over a multi-year process as the company matures, as it continues to expand overseas. And so thinking about you know, your compliance program, again, just in a phased way on a multi-year arc, I think is you know, the better way to think about it because then the company can absorb that level of change and prioritize what's really more important to customers and to the company. You mentioned calling David Bell at Fenwick when you got the call that it, it looked like Mosaic acquisition was going to go forward. Just give us a sense of how you spend your time. How much of your time is focused on specific legal issues like that one? And then how much of your time is spent interacting with executives and then thinking about what organization needs from its legal team? As you were saying, maybe privacy is a more immediate need to build out than trade control. So what does that mix in your day or your week or your month look like? No day is the same, I think, for any GC, right? But sometimes very little of my time is actually spent being a lawyer. And so I spend a lot of my time meeting with my team, strategizing, dealing with personnel issues, dealing with a lot of business issues, right? So at Databricks, eStaff meets three times every week because it's really important to our CEO that eStaff is completely aligned. So we spend a lot of time together. And so I would say the majority of my time is spent on business-related items as opposed to legal-specific ones. That also, though, makes my job even more interesting, right? Because I'm not just a lawyer, I'm a business advisor. And part of that also is making sure that I'm up to speed and understand what's happening in the industry. That includes talking to folks like David Bell and a number of other folks. I mean, one thing that I have prioritized for many years is every quarter, David and I spend, you know, an hour, two hours together and he updates me on what's happening from a legal and corporate governance perspective across a number of different industries, that helps me understand what other companies are doing and how that might apply to my company, right? And so it's a super helpful session that, you know, like I said, we've done for many years now every quarter. And how many legal areas do you feel that you need that depth of understanding in where you need to talk to specialists, legal specialists in that area to have the depth of understanding to one, to manage legal issues and risks the company faces, but then two, to think about how to build out your team. I like to build a team of really seasoned lawyers and leaders. And so there's not a lot of those areas where I'm personally kind of talking to outside advisors, at least kind of on my legal team. So I have a fantastic person, for instance, who's in the audience who leads my employment litigation team. She's been doing this for many decades. And I expect that she's going to be on top of all issues related to that area and she'll escalate to me where needed. I feel the same way on the privacy side, on corporate side. We have a person who runs our public affairs team where he's had a really interesting history, but he was my predecessor. He stepped into this role. He knows the industry and the company super well. And so on those kinds of areas, I feel as though I have really great subject matter expertise internally. So it really matters about how I think about planning strategically. And that's where I leverage folks like David. Talk a little more about how you've approached building out your in-house team 
what you look for in the people you're hiring at various levels? What kinds of personalities may be a great fit for a company in hyper growth and, and what personalities may not work as well? I focused on and my goal is to hire the best and the brightest people who I can on my team. And I take a couple of different approaches there. I mean, the first approach is it's really important to make sure that I'm getting the right mix of skill sets. And that includes people who have a ton of experience. But it also includes people who have the right mindset for where we're at as a company. And people who are from, for example, Microsoft or Google or Salesforce, I mean, those are terrific people with a lot of experience. But do they have experience for what I need at this point? Because I need people who are going to be able to build. I need doers. And that's a different mindset for somebody who maybe can maintain a system or improve a system. But this is thinking through building net new processes and systems. And like I said, that's a different mindset. And so I look at people who have both experience as well as the right mindset. I also am personally involved in every single hire for the legal department. We're still a relatively small team. We have about 65 folks. But even at this scale, and we're continuing to grow and hire, but it's really important to me that I meet every single person before an offer is extended because a bad hire is really going to set us back. And so I do want to make sure that that's something that I prioritize. The last thing I'll mention is an approach that we use at Databricks that I had not seen at a prior company. And it's what we call our 3612 process. And that is, so at least for the legal team, you know, any hire that is director level or above, they have to go through what we call our 3612. And so they present to a group of folks who includes everyone who's on the interview panel, as well as a number of other you know, folks who are going to work with the individual if they get hired. And so they walk through exactly what they're going to do during their first three, six, and 12 months at the company. They also talk about their leadership style. They th- talk about you know, what their approach would be to various topics. And it really gives us a great idea as to this is exactly what this person's going to do. The 3612 sessions are less of a presentation and more of a dialogue. As I went through this process at Databricks, it really confirmed to me that these are the exact people who I want to work with, right? I mean, you know, and they knew exactly what I was going to do so that once I started and I started to kind of roll out new programs or have different priorities, that they were going to be surprised by that because I talked about all of this during my 3612. And so I do think it is a really helpful approach to take and it minimizes the potential kind of bad hires on the leadership side. And then finally, I'm assuming most, if not all of your senior hires have had in-house experience previously. What do you look for in you know lawyers who may be transitioning from a law firm to their first in-house position? I look for people who are intellectually curious. Obviously, subject matter expertise is going to matter a lot, but people who aren't intellectually curious, I don't think that they're going to end up being good leaders because I think we can all grow and learn and develop. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 30 years and I have a lot to grow and learn and develop still. And I'd like to have leaders who have that mindset, that growth mindset, right? Because We're in novel territory in a lot of areas that we're facing. And so folks who are kind of know-it-alls, they've kind of been there, done that, 
they aren't going to have the mindset that, you know, they need to evolve and they need to question and they need to take things from a first principles perspective, right? And let's see what we're proposing and why we're doing it and understand that. So intellectual curiosity and humility, they're a big part of what I look for in leaders. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Yep, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.